You're listening to Local Government Insights, a podcast for state and local governments. If you're looking to optimize operations, improve services for your constituents, and maximize revenue without raising taxes, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Local Government Insights podcast, Modernizing Government Leadership, your source and insight for local government technology. My name is Brennan Milton, and today we have with us Dr. Leo Feller from the UCLA Anderson Forecast here to discuss an economic outlook for 2022. Welcome to the show, Leo. Thanks so much for being here. It's great to have you. Brennan, thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So for those listening, Dr. Leo is an economist with the UCLA Anderson Forecast and is responsible for producing their U.S. macroeconomic forecast. He conducts research and writes articles in the areas of labor economics, urban economics, trade, banking and mergers, and antitrust. Leo received his PhD in economics from Brown University, his master's in international policy from Stanford University, and his BA in economics and international relations from Stanford University. So, Leo, if it's okay, we'll just jump right in. Um, yeah, I understand, okay. based on our, our pre-interview, you have the most recent GDP numbers that you want to share with us today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on what that means for the U.S. economy and, and more so globally. Right. So GDP, uh, which is a measure of what we produce in the U.S., contracted by 1.4% at an annual rate uh, in the first quarter of this year. So a lot of people have been concerned that this signals that we're entering into a recession. But if you actually break down the numbers, there's a lot of positive news in here. Right. So the positive news is that the things that are growing in the U.S. are personal consumption. Right. Consumption really is what drives the U.S. economy and business investment. So businesses are actually expanding uh, their productive capacity to be able to increase supply, right? So those are the things that are driving economic growth. What caused economic growth to decline on net? Well, the reason is that a lot of what we bought were actually imports, right? So they don't count as you know expanding the productive capacity of the US because these are things that were produced abroad. Right. So we're buying. We just happen to be buying things that are produced not in the U.S. Right. So that's number one. We brought up we, we bought a lot of imports, a lot more than normal. The flip side is that the world isn't doing too well right now. Right. We have a war in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, we have a European the, the, the strong likelihood of a European recession because of how dependent on yeah. uh, energy they are from from Russia. Right. And so factories in places like Germany uh are facing much higher costs and they're not able to produce you know at the at the rate that they were producing before so because of that they're not buying u.s exports um china is in another wave of covid and they have been having lockdowns again and so they're also not buying uh u.s exports so we're buying a lot of imports from the rest of the world the rest of the world isn't buying a lot of exports from us and what that tended to do is slow down uh, a piece of our economy so that's that's piece one that slowed down. Piece number two has to do uh, with inventory, right? So we accumulated a lot of inventory at the end of 2021, right? Businesses were ready for the Christmas shopping season. Uh, they were concerned that they weren't going to be able to, to you know, meet the issues that they were facing with supply constraints. So they went out and they bought and they bought and they bought and they stocked up on the inventory that had been depleted you know, in the middle of 2021 because of supply constraints. Yeah. So what happened now in the beginning of this year is that, you know, they had inventory, they didn't need to buy as much inventory. And so there wasn't as much inventory replenishment 
And that also slowed down economic growth. And the third point has to do with government spending. So we had a lot of COVID relief programs uh, that were slated to end at the end of 2021. They ended at the end of 2021. That meant that governments uh, got a little bit of a financial negative hit in the beginning of 2022 and weren't able to go out and spend as much as they had been spending previously. And you know, collectively, what that meant is that our economic growth slowed down at the beginning of uh, 2022. But fundamentally, there's a lot of strength in just these two numbers, the personal consumption, consumers are still going out and buying, and businesses are still going out and investing. And that holds a lot of promise in that it signals that people feel overall decently good about the economy, right? Businesses feel more confident about the economy. They're willing to make these long-term investments. And so this really signals that this contraction that we just had right now is likely a one-off, right? If, you know, if we don't get any other major, you know, COVID waves, if we don't get any escalation in the war between Russia and Ukraine, we really expect that the economy is going to keep growing pretty strongly for the rest of the year. That's excellent. And and after covering the economy as a whole, I'd love to just spend a few minutes talking about a couple of different specific areas of the economy. One being unemployment. Uh, we all know unemployment is is still low, yet many industries seem to still be struggling to fill jobs. So how is unemployment trending and what effect does that have on state and local governments specifically? Yeah, so the unemployment rate right now is at 3.6%, right? We are close to the level that we were uh, right before the pandemic hit. This is the fastest employment recovery uh, we have ever had in the history of data, uh, macroeconomic data uh, in the US, right? So going all the way back to you know the 1940s, we've never had a recovery in the unemployment rate from around 15% where we were in April of 2020 down to 3.6% uh, today, this is a remarkable recovery, right? Wow. Um, not surprisingly, you know, people are having a hard time hiring because suddenly the economy really rebounded very quickly. So we got the latest number uh, this past week, something called the JOLTS, uh, Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey. And yet again, we hit a record for the highest number of job openings available, right? So firms are really advertising to try to attract workers. And again, this is a long-term investment, right? You don't go out and you, you don't go out and you hire a worker, uh, you know, as, you know, full-time essentially, right? Not just a temp worker, but someone that you really want to have uh, as part of your organization, unless you foresee that you're gonna have a demand for this person for the foreseeable future, right? Yeah. And so again, this hiring, these job openings are a signal of the confidence that businesses have in the economy continuing to do well uh, over the coming year. Now, what does this mean for governments, right? So private sector can be very nimble, right? Private sector, and we're seeing this, they're raising wages, you're having, you know, Starbucks offer $15 an hour, you're having Amazon having $20 an hour, you're having all sorts of private sector firms raising wages or offering bonuses or offering different kinds of incentives to attract workers in such a highly competitive labor market. Governments aren't quite this nimble, right? It takes, you have to do a lot of uh, jumping through hoops, uh, politically, legislatively, to be able to change what you're paying workers in government or what benefits you're offering in government. 
And the outcome of this has been that we've seen a lot of government staffing shortages, right? So uh, I live in Chicago. We now get regular announcements when we take public transit in Chicago that there are uh, train delays because they don't have enough staff, right, right? To run the trains, to maintain the trains, to you know enforce train signaling. Uh, and so you know shortages there are leading to a decline in uh, you know in the quality of public service. Um, you've seen this in education, right? Where a lot of teachers have been leaving public education for the private sector because the private sector is just more competitive at this point, right? They're offering signing bonuses, better compensation. Um, the benefits of government work are often long-term, right? You start off with a low salary, but you have perhaps better job security, you have right. pensions, you have higher benefits, but it takes a while for those to accumulate. And in the immediate environment, the private sector is actually a lot more attractive. And, and I'm glad you touched on it because that's a question that I often get. One of the more popular questions I get in some of the pre-interviews that I, that I do on the show with local government leaders is, is the connectivity between how the private sector responds to certain economic surplus or downturn and how local governments respond. And, and this specific question, it always comes up. Like, I'd love for you to expand on how our current labor market is affecting the privatization of services uh, and how that's affecting how local governments even operate is what's your take on how that's trending, where it's headed and how is it affecting more holistically how local governments are operating with respect to the privatization of services? So I think with regard to being nimble in terms of being able to hire more easily, being, uh, being able to offer uh, better benefits, higher wages when there's an economic upturn and be able to attract workers, uh, being able to shed workers more easily when there's an economic downturn, right? The private sector can do that with a lot greater ease than the public sector can. Uh, and so often what you see is this desire to outsource or privatize services where possible so that you as a government, you know, engage in longer term contracts with, with firms. These firms then go out and are the ones responsible for hiring workers, incentivizing workers. Um, you also have the ability, I think, you know, po politics gets uh, very difficult when you're trying to hold accountable uh, certain sectors of a public, uh, a public workforce, right? Um, yeah. And so an example right now that we're seeing, uh, you know, really in many cities is that because of the challenge of being able to hire workers, they can't fulfill services like tree trimming, trash collection. And so they have to go out and hire private sector firms, whether or not they intended to privatize services or not, simply because they don't have enough capacity within their organizations uh, to be able to fulfill requests, right? So another place that we're seeing this come up has to do with crime and policing. Uh, and we've seen a lot of wealthier neighborhoods in many US cities uh, go out and try to hire private sector security firms, right? Uh, to, mm -hmm. it, to basically police local streets. So these are not, you know, just homeowner associations. These are neighborhoods getting together, trying to hire a private sector uh, police force, you know, to, you know, have a car parked in the street and make mm -hmm. sure that crime is mitigated in that immediate area. Um, this has both a benefit and a blessing, right? Or benefit, a bane and a blessing. The, the blessing is that this means that certain parts of cities are finding a way to relieve the requirement 
that the public sector police force needs to come in and enforce these areas because there's already a private sector police force there. Sure. That public sector police force can focus somewhere else, right, where perhaps there's greater need. The bane is that the accountability isn't the same, right? Do the laws governing whether or not these private sector police officers have to wear body cameras, right? Have they had the same kind of de-escalation training? There's just some concerns that you're going to have, you know, perhaps more racial profiling, perhaps more, you know, bending of the rules than you would have with a, a public sector police force. Um, so there, there are some concerns in terms of the direction that, uh, you know, either the inability uh, of the, the you know, government sector to keep up in hiring in this kind of labor market, what kind of implications that will have for the quality and the equality of public services uh, within, within a city or within a state? It's, it certainly is something to pay attention to in terms of it. I like, I like how you address the lack of accountability at times or the lack of overall governance of these types of groups. Um, and unfortunately, it, it further widens that divide between the haves and have nots, unfortunately, at the end of the day, like the, the wealthier neighborhoods or the, the more uh, robust areas can afford to hire these private resources if they're doing it on their own versus the ones that cannot. Um, and oftentimes, as we talked about, it takes an electoral cycle to kind of to, to kind of change how this approach is happening, um, which is interesting to watch. So thank you for your feedback on that. Um, let's shift just a bit here and talk about another specific industry. And I know it's specific, but it is kind of very important, very important to our economy and important to this update. And that's manufacturing. Mm -hmm. How is U.S. manufacturing doing? Where is it headed? And what is our, what's the update from from the forecast? All right. So despite what a lot of people think, U.S. manufacturing is really strong. Right. We are the, the world's second largest you know, country in terms of manufacturing. China is number one. We are number two. Right. The difference is that we don't manufacture consumer goods anymore. Right. Uh, to the extent that we used to. Right. We, we have shifted the you know, manufacturing of iPhones and TVs and toys uh, and clothing to places like China. Right. What we manufacture instead is heavy business equipment. Right. Tractors, uh, you know, machinery that businesses use to then make all these consumer goods. So that's what the U.S. manufacturing base really is. Now, there might be a shift right now that we've seen because of COVID, which is because of the long supply chain issues that businesses have been facing, they might want to bring back certain production uh, facilities to, to the U.S. Um, and we saw this with, with certain companies, right? We saw this, for example, with Peloton, the exercise manufacturer, uh, in the midst of the pandemic, facing very long lead times to get you know, equipment from China to the U.S. And so they opened up factories in Ohio. We've seen this with Intel opening up factories in the U.S., right? We've seen car companies expand production in the U.S. Um, and so there does seem to be a shift that we're not going to just be outsourcing production to the Far East anymore, given all of these, you know, supply issues that we faced over this past year. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we we're still manufacturing goods that businesses rely upon. And mm -hmm. so when the rest of the world's businesses aren't doing as well, right, then they end up buying less of our goods, right? So they're not buying as many Boeing airplanes if their economies aren't doing as well, right? Uh, they're not buying as many Caterpillar, you know, tractors uh, if their economies aren't doing that well. And, and this is, you know, what we really have to think about, which is we are a global economy. 
U.S. manufacturing does very well when the rest of the world does very well, too. Uh, and, and that's one thing to keep in mind, which is, you know, given what's happening right now in, uh, in Ukraine, given the constraints in Europe, you know, they're one of our biggest, uh, you know, purchasers of exports. Um, same with China, buys a lot of our exports for manufacturing. Uh, and so the, there's some concern that we might face a little bit of a slowdown as the rest of the world uh, isn't doing quite as well. The flip side, U.S. firms are actually bringing back some, some production domestically. Um, and so in the end, this, this really should even out, right? U.S. manufacturing really should remain pretty strong. That's great. And Leo, another the third kind of main area I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about today, uh, and that'd be inflation, right? Yeah. Um, inflation seems like it's it's clearly going to remain high this year and probably next year as well uh, as our as our past stimulus that you alluded to a little bit earlier in the conversation continues to keep pushing prices up, right? And I know uh, updates are being made even in recent days from the Federal Reserve, but can you speak to where interest rates are heading from your perspective and what the Federal Reserve is doing to combat such high inflation? Sure. So first, let's take a little bit of a step back and, and try to understand where this inflation is coming from, right? So inflation is always a story of too much demand facing too little supply, right? And during the pandemic, you know, we all suddenly had a lot of extra cash on our hands, either from uh, fiscal stimulus from the government, uh, the Fed buying, uh, you know, bonds, which means that they're putting money in our pockets and they're buying, you know, they're holding on to, to bonds, um, from, uh, you know, people not going out and spending on services, which meant they had more money to spend on goods. And so what we saw in the beginning was this surge in goods inflation. Right, people competing to buy things like, uh, you know, home refurbishing supplies, uh, appliances, desks, laptops, right, stuff, right. And so we saw a lot of inflation in the beginning in goods. This led to a lot of supply constraints. Our ports couldn't handle the amount of goods coming in, uh, you know, from the Far East into our ports uh, through distribution centers to store shelves, right. It wasn't that we weren't getting enough supply, it's that we were getting a lot of supply, but demand was even higher still, right? And that led to, to inflation. So uh, we're still seeing signs that we might be supply constrained, right? China has had to close down some of its productive capacity to combat the COVID waves that they're currently experiencing. You're seeing a lot of ships, uh, the same way that they had been parked outside of the ports of LA and Long Beach trying to unload, they are now parked outside of ports in Shanghai and Guangzhou trying to load, right? And so the, the same supply constraints are reappearing, which means that we might still have this cycle of, of uh, you know, supply constraints pushing inflation up. Um, demands that remain strong, like as I mentioned, businesses are investing, consumers still are going out and, and buying things, right? What the Fed can do to combat this is just make it harder for us to go out and buy things. And the way that they do this is that they raise interest rates. And so we're already seeing that mortgage rates are above, the 30-year mortgage is above 5%, right? That means fewer people are going to go out and buy houses. And if fewer people go out and buy houses, then they buy fewer appliances, they buy less furniture, right? Home purchases are always these, you know, big ticket items that then spur a lot of additional purchases, right? You have to furnish these homes, you have to buy appliances, you have to do repairs, right? You have to do all of these activities that go along with buying a home that actually generate a lot of economic activity. 
And if that slows down, then the economy as a whole slows down, right? Some slowdown isn't bad. We grew really fast last year. We grew 5.7% last yeah, year. Right. That's, a, that's one of the fastest rates of growth that we've had. Like granted, we were coming from a rebound, but it's unusual yeah. for the economy to expand so rapidly because when it does, it takes a while for supply to catch up, right? Mm. And so what the Fed Reserve is doing is it's saying, okay, let me raise interest rates. Let me slow down a little bit of this demand. If it takes a while for supply to catch up, right? So here's supply, right? If it takes right. a while for supply to catch up, let me see if I can bring demand down so that there's a balance. Got it. And, and that's what it's doing by raising interest rates, right? In the short term, this means it's harder for businesses to invest. It's harder for consumers to go out and buy cars on, on credit, to buy appliances on credit, to buy housing on credit. Yeah. Um, the benefit is that we right now aren't over leveraged, right? Consumers actually reduced a lot of their leverage during the pandemic. And so they paid off credit cards, they paid off loans. You know, businesses were able to refinance uh, some of their higher interest loans for lower interest loans. And so, yeah. you know, we're, we're still cash rich at this point. And that means that it's going to be even harder for the Fed through interest rates to bring demand down. So there's some concern that the Fed really has to raise interest rates quite a bit to get demand to come down and to get inflation to balance out. Just one last point on this. The Fed has a dual mandate. Mandate number one is full employment, right? We're at 3.6% unemployment rate. We're pretty much yeah. at full employment, right? Yeah. The second mandate is price stability. And we're nowhere near price stability right now. Right. So with we had eight and a half percent year over year inflation, in the consumer price index in the latest reading. Right. This is something that we haven't seen since the 1980s. And granted, a lot of this is energy prices due to what's happening with between uh, Russia and Ukraine. A lot of this has to do with supply constraints. But at the end of the day, I mean, what consumers see is higher gas prices or higher food prices. Right. That's right or they see shortages on store shelves and they punish politicians uh, when they have these experiences. And so, you know, there's a lot of pressure to get inflation down quickly, even if that means that unemployment might tick up. And how do we connect that update that you just gave to local economies? Like how is inflation specifically affecting local governments? As you know, you know, that, well over a thousand local leaders tune into this show and they often want to know how is it affecting me? Yeah, how is so, inflation affecting local economy specifically and where do you see it trending? Yeah. So first of all, inflation is highly variable across the US, right? I'm going to give you two data points that are going to, and at the moment that I give you these two data points, you're going to understand very well what where inflation is coming from. The city, the metro area that had the lowest inflation was San Francisco. The metro area that had the highest inflation was Phoenix, right? This is places where people left during the pandemic and where people moved to during the pandemic. And so if people left San Francisco and moved to Phoenix, right, on net, and Phoenix suddenly gained population, that means that they gained demand. That means that suddenly there were more people trying to buy yeah. cars, houses, furniture, restaurant services, right? Everything that Phoenix is offering, and that's really raising prices in Phoenix. Now, granted, it also raises job opportunities, right? Yeah. It also raises the, the amount of earnings you're going to get from opening a business in Phoenix. It just takes time for those adjustments to happen, right? And since there isn't as much demand in San Francisco, San Francisco didn't experience as high of inflation, right? So it's highly variable across the U.S. And there's really neat data where you can see, you know, basically where people were trying to move to 
uh, is where inflation was was higher. Um, this is especially true for these you know small and mid-sized cities that suddenly got an influx of population, right? Boise, Fresno, Modesto, all these suburbs uh, where people yeah. congregated to um, in anticipation that they'd be able to work remotely and be able to have longer commutes or that they'd be you know remote all the time and so that they can be in you know these these uh, smaller cities. Um, so, so that's one factor uh, that local leaders need to be aware of, right? If you make it easier for uh, you know businesses to get permits, for businesses to open in your area, that should help tame inflation in a lot of right. areas because then there can be a supply response, right? The second thing is that this has been a cash cow for a lot of local governments, right? Suddenly, housing prices are increasing in places like you know Boise, Fresno, Modesto. And depending on where you are and, and how your tax rates are determined, as home prices go up, you're getting a lot of new property tax revenue. You're getting a lot of sales tax revenue because there's a lot more business activity uh, in these communities. And so governments are facing this windfall of tax revenue. And will it last? That depends, right? That depends if, you know, as in these next few years, if people realize that they actually, you know, miss working in an office or to, in order to get ahead, they have to, you know, make it to an office every now and then. Maybe these, these places where people have just been working 100% remote won't be able to do as well. And you're going to see a little bit of a pullback. Um, but the reality for now is that a lot of these, these um, smaller cities uh, have seen this very positive windfall of cash. Uh, and they have the prospect of higher tax revenue going forward, given that they're facing higher property values uh, and the way their taxes are, are determined. The exception of that really has to do with California, because California has Prop 13 and, and these property right. tax limitations. Okay. Um, they have still benefited because a lot of people switched into new homes. And by switching into new homes, they've reset their property taxes. We are likely not going to see this kind of reset for a while because a lot of people locked in 2.75% mortgage rates that are not going to come back anytime soon. And so people are going to hold on to housing longer as long as the cost of switching out of these fixed rate mortgages, you know, into some higher fixed rate mortgage environment is going to hold them back from selling. Correct. And with the excess funds, uh, from these increases in property tax, like you mentioned, gas tax, sales tax, where do you think these local economies will spend that excess funds? Do you think it'll go towards infrastructure, climate change, the rebates? Like what, what areas do you think that they'll take advantage of? Cause they got to spend it somewhere. So the first thing that we've seen is actually rebates, right? This is, if you think about politically, what is your best incentive, right? If you're up for reelection, giving a rebate gets money into people's hands okay. right away right sure. it doesn't help do it doesn't help alleviate inflation right because it helps increase even more demand in your local economy um but we've seen in response to higher gas prices right the governor of california issuing you know gas rebates uh for people who have registered vehicles uh we've seen here in chicago the mayor issuing gas cards to households right um we've seen chicago start a uh, you know, a cash transfer program to low-income households, the same way that Stockton had piloted uh, in California several years ago. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of movement towards rebates. Uh, in part, the government, the federal government set this example during the pandemic, where they provided fiscal stimulus directly to households, and that actually helped boost the state of the local, of, you know, the national economy yeah. and various local economies. 
Um, but also it's just what, what is politically very feasible. If you have a cash stockpile right now, right, you can make yourself politically very popular by lowering taxes or offering cash rebates, right, uh, of some kind. Um, and so we've seen a lot of governments doing this. Investing in infrastructure has long-term benefits and short-term costs, right? And we've seen this, I think the best example is California high-speed rail, right? Maybe one day, 10 years, 20 years from now, you know, people are going to really praise the government officials that helped implement California high-speed rail. Right now, all that's happening is people are saying it's a boondoggle with, you know, yeah. cost overruns. And, and so it's politically very costly, even though, you know, maybe when 10, 20 years from now, when the people that were responsible for implementing this, you know, are no longer in office, they might have a, you know, a section of this rail line named after them, right? They're paying the cost right now for the potential of a long-term benefit. And this is true yep. for things like climate change, right? You know, it's very hard to campaign on saying, look, I prevented a possible, you know, calamity in our, in our you know, area uh, 50 years from now, but that doesn't get you elected today. Um, and I think this is the incentives really aren't there uh, for government officials to use some of this, this um, cash stockpile for long-term investments. Um, it's really right now to try to, you know, do things that are politically very popular, like cash rebates or, or um, tax reductions. Got it. I just want to get my hands on one of those gas cars. That's what I want. <laughs> you, you and basically pretty much everyone in the U.S. That's right. Well, Leo, I appreciate your time today. I appreciate your update. I guess in closing, I'd love to just get one last question in. And this is kind of a in summary or, or takeaway type of approach. But what's the most important economic statistic for government leaders to follow in 2022? I think people really want to have a sense of local housing prices. Uh, and, you know, even if you, if you even take one step back, there's really great data from Redfin and Zillow looking at home searches, even before it gets reflected in you know, home prices, what is happening to search activity in local areas? Because this is going to give you a signal of you know how much interest is there still in people moving to you know phoenix and nashville and fresno and modesto from places like san francisco or are people starting to move back right is you know has have we reached a turning point in this frenzy that we've had in prices and this is important because it helps government officials determine well how many how how much do i need to expand my local services right if we're getting a lot of demand for housing then that also also means I need to plan for more schools, more infrastructure, more collection, more policing, more fire, right? Yep. If this is beginning to slow down, then I can slow down in my long-term planning for this. Um, but, you know, I need to provide the services if we're going to continue expanding as, you know, as, as a city. Um, this also has to do with tax revenue, like what's going to happen to tax revenue going forward, depending on how much demand there is for people trying to move into the city and, and bid up housing prices. So, so really, I think in the end, housing demand, either through what's happening with prices, what's happening with Redfin and Zillow searches, um, is something for government officials to kind of keep their uh, keep a check on, because um, that will help them with long-term planning. That's excellent. Well, again, Leo, thanks so much for jumping on today. Uh, really appreciate your time.
time and, and for sharing your your expertise and perspective with us. I think this will be super valuable for, for many that that tune in weekly. So for all our listeners, thank you so much, Brennan. I appreciate you absolutely, having absolutely. And for our listeners, thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of Local Government Insights Podcast: Modernizing Government Leadership. Uh, please stay tuned for more local government news and insights to come. You've been listening to Local Government Insights, modernizing government leadership. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.